Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host for today's interview with Brooke Rollins, Assistant Professor of English at Lehigh University. Her book, The Ethics of Persuasion, Derrida's Rhetorical Legacies, was published by Ohio State University Press in 2020 as part of their series, Classical Memories, Modern Identities. I will not be so bold as even to attempt to persuade you of my position. That's it. You were expecting perhaps to hear, but you won't. I'm convinced. A classical handbook like Rhetoric to Alexander or exemplars of the art like Gorgias's Encomium of Helen bear reading from a 21st century perspective and likewise offer an approach to reading of a major thinker of the 20th century. Jacques Derrida, the thinker in question, is known for his deconstructive reading techniques. His writings have gained unduly a notoriety. Deconstruction is nihilistic, is hollow at the core. Turns out that's false. Derrida throughout his career was deeply committed to a form of ethics that accorded entirely with his rigorous brand of reading text. So, that is, an ethics that withstood relentless scrutiny an ethics that met and returned to the gaze of the reader who stares. This Derridian ethics is called aporetic ethics. The crux of aporetic ethics is that no autonomous subject pre-exists any decision to act or any actual action before that same subject has already become involved with another subject who exists themselves under the same condition. Now, I know this can get abstract quickly, but Brooke Rollins' Ethics of Persuasion brings the abstract down to earth again and again, so that even a reader like myself, who's not overly familiar with Derrida's work, can explain the idea of aporetic ethics to him or herself, well, like this. The moment that I go to persuade my friend not to move house, and that moment when I line up my arguments thus, the job he's moving for pays less than his current job, the career chances he was hoping for are really one in a million. The distance he would be moving is sure to weaken all the ties he and his family have, have to this particular city. Well, when I make that attempt at persuasion, I'm making it from the position of my friend already having addressed me. Now, I don't mean address in the sense of him asking me my opinion on the move, though that might be the case. No, I mean he's addressed me a because he is another person, and we all undergo every moment of our lives a ceaseless barrage of such addresses from all the people who are in the world, and B, because quite simply, he is my friend. And so the addressee to my attempt at persuasion really has already constituted my attempt to persuade him before I've even made the attempt. In short, I wouldn't have bothered if he wasn't my friend. All this is disruptive enough to begin with, But we must add to it this further complication. The effect on me as the persuader is that I am no longer just the persuader. 
Because as much as I, ju- I can't be sure what my friend will do, likewise, I can't be sure now what it is that I will do. My friend has entered into my will in such a way that my persuasive speech cannot be spoken by me alone. My friend speaks through me while I speak to him. That's an example, mine to be sure, but it certainly illustrates the base circumstance of aporetic ethics. The other calls the self into being. The self responds, note, responds to the call by deciding what to do. This is a complicated deciding, to say the least. However, it is very much not an anything goes or a renunciation of ethical concern, much the opposite. Because much as the text never stops deconstructing itself under the gaze of the Derridian reader, so does the subject never stop reconstructing him or herself under the call of the Derridian other. Aporetic ethics brings the subject right to the end of the way, where seemingly no forward motion is possible, but aporetic ethics then demands that the subject break path every time. All this is what a 20th century thinker can bring to the art of rhetoric as practiced in the ancient world. The ancient world and its art, though, also bring something to the 20th century thinker, and that something is this. Aporetic ethics relate very closely to. Aporetic ethics is played out, in fact, through rhetoric. Jacques Derrida's engagement with John Austin's performativity is well known. What is far less well known and one of the many contributions that Brooke Rollins makes to our understanding of ethics, is that Austin's performativity was also the way in which Derrida practiced his brand of ethics. Jacques Derrida's famed writing style is no add-on to his project, nor are Jacques Derrida's repeated descriptions of aporetic ethics in the terms of speech acts merely a fortuitous trope. Derridian ethics are rhetorical, and so no wonder that ancient rhetoric or rhetoric of any time period, can be illuminated from a Derridian perspective. Persuasive talk breaks down under our ethical existence, but human ethics rebuild the act of persuasion. Neither rhetoric nor ethics are quite what we have imagined them to be, and Brooke Rollins helps us to understand how and why in her book, The Ethics of Persuasion. So let's begin today's episode, Brooke Rollins' Ethics of Persuasion. Brooke, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I appreciate that. Great. Um, I wonder if you could uh, give us a bit of the background to the book. What led you uh, to this idea, bringing the 20th century back to the past and the past up to the 20th century? Yes. Um, Well, I'll say that as a writing teacher, um, I have always been really you know, I've always had this strong feeling that persuasion is really powerful, you know, but in, in, in our professional lives, but also in our, in our social lives. Um, and so it's also a really difficult thing to do, right. And it requires a kind of, a kind of training and, and it's precisely this classical rhetorical tradition where so much of this training is, um, invented and gets off the ground. Um, so, so, that to me in itself is, is incredibly, um, you know, unendingly fascinating. So many s- stories and approaches come from that classical tradition, but, but it's also born in a, in a fairly defensive posture. Um, you know, the, the power of persuasion is also a source of, of consternation and, and critique from, um, you know, from, from the likes of, of Plato, but, but even in the present day, I have, 
colleagues now who across the university, when they hear students are learning how to persuade effectively, feel some concern um, because they want students to be able to objectively, neutrally um, say what is. And, and I think persuasion carries with it this kind of connotation that the, it's structured toward the outside, toward, toward the friend you mentioned, toward the audience you're hoping to persuade. And so it's always interested in, in a way that, that has, has drawn a great deal of, uh, you know, for all time, um, a great deal of, of critique as a kind of unethical, manipulative, guileful um, form of communication. And um, my sense has, all, has always been when you actually read the, the classical rhetorical figures that there's, there's so much more going on there. And that perhaps even in those instances of a very, um, you know, powerful, guileful, perhaps persuasive attempts, there's something more, something more to discover. So, um, you know, if I uh, read the fragments of, of Gorgias, um, or uh, the the ghostwritten speeches of Lysias, you know, these were two um, incredibly persuasive rhetorical figures known for their persuasive capability. And yet, I think what they what they can be seen to show, what I argue they they do kind of reveal inadvertently, perhaps, um, is an account of persuasion as encountering the other in a way that self identity is unsettled. Um, so, so I enjoy looking back at those, at those figures who, who are kind of famous, um, persuasive talent known for their persuasive talents, uh, with Gorgias and Lysias and, um, also a thinker like Isocrates, who was a renowned, um, writer of speeches, first and foremost, a teacher, someone who taught students to, um, persuade well, uh, and, and, and my task in the book is to see what ethics can emerge from this otherwise, you know, utilitarian scene. And um, as you noted, Derrida is the figure who helps me, I think, articulate the importance of a self-identity that is unsettled in its encounter with the other. And I mean, I would add, you know, I think what, what happened in my case, and I think what so often happens is the theoretical lens you bring to the object of study is is kind of transformed in that study. And so um, I, I really have always been so taken with what I find to be the kind of virtuoso, beautiful um, readings of Derrida, who, you know, he's able to show, he's able to draw out um, from within text something you know, that I wouldn't have been able to see without that. And, and I, and I tried to bring, you know, not in the same way, but, but that spirit of taking these highly invested texts that for better or worse really are the founding texts of the Western rhetorical tradition and, and draw something out from, from within them. Um, and, and it is this kind of ethical encounter in which, you know, the speaker is already affected by the hearer and so that traditional communicative um, triad is 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 unsettled, um, but but I do think you know Derrida's own work um, strikes me as as highly uh, persuasive. I've always felt that kind of affective 
um, response in reading his work. I've also found him to be interested in in rhetorical figures, rhetorical forms, as um, he kind of became the the funeral the the, the funeral orator of of his generation of um, friends and philosophers, those who passed before him. Um, so, so uniquely, a, th- a thinker uniquely bound up with the rhetorical tradition, perhaps in ways he 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 wouldn't have even agreed with or um, featured on his own. He in his funeral speeches and consolatory texts, you know, he always talked about how he he disliked this genre of of speaking and how it was difficult to, you know, offer a speech in praise of um, the dead friend, and yet. Um, he was he was wonderful at that, and I think that that some of these rhetorical concepts infuse his work, help us see it again from from this different perspective, and um, so so in that way, it was really mutually informing, right? What started as my bringing Derrida to some of these classical texts in order to draw something out within them helped me see Derrida's own writing in a different way, and and I think that. Over the course of the chapters of the book, that's um, that's what plays out. I think that's a wonderful thing because you give us precisely that that new perspective. I would say probably for the majority of people, many uh, Derrida scholars may have had a nuanced picture of him for some time, but I would I would certainly say that a lot of people identify with my view that right deconstruction is as i said a bit nihilistic it's 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 hard to gauge and figure out abstract and and that's just not the derrida who emerges from your pages i think you make a, a wonderful point now of in chapter 6 6 which you call derrida's farewell and these uh, funeral speeches talking about how he rhetorically excels at them but immediately the ethical question involved of him not wanting to do them because he knows that he must fail at them and yet feeling the responsibility to engage with them because of the expectations upon him and also his love for the lost friend. Right. And, and, you know, that was um, always such a puzzle for me. Uh, You know, so Derrida is known, I think his, you know, one of the prevailing thoughts about uh, when we think about Derrida is, you know, it's all about busting presence, right? There is no simple self-presence that's a given. It's always interrupted by a future anterior. So, so he has a very complicated um, understanding and, 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 a, and a powerful challenge to self-presence, presence in general, metaphysics of presence. And yet he takes up um, this rhetorical form that, um, you know, that Aristotle identifies as being concerned with the present, right? The, the epideictic um, genre of, of speeches, those have to do with the present moment, um, giving a speech of praise in, 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 the, in the moment, uh, in, in a single moment where cultural values are what they are and, and kind of in view of the mourners who, who are mourning with you. And so I always wonder, it always just struck me like, why is this the, the genre most closely associated with presence, the one that he takes up, you know, or um, how can, how can we, how can we reconcile that? And, and I think that in, in, answering that question, right? That you must necessarily fail at speaking about the friend because um, what friendship must ultimately entail is a kind of non-appropriative 
rapport um, with the other you feel so close to, right? Who, who, who affectively, we really do want to hold on to them in, in, in a way that um, makes them ours. Um, and, and I think those are the things that he, he uses this rhetorical genre to grap- grapple with. Yeah. And, and, and this makes me think of a word that reappears in all of the chapters at, at, at some point, the idea of rapprochement from the French, so rapprochement or um, mm-hmm. the connection, close relationship uh, and intimacy, even if you like. Um, if I'm doing the translation correct, mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least getting the notion. Um, and, and then you uh, talk, and, and this gets really at the heart, I think, of this metaphysics that, that goes throughout the book. Uh, and then you talk of, in, uh, of grammatology, where he is um, dealing with, I, I, I quote mostly here, I'm just reading off page uh, 27, and this is uh, the case that um, you have this address maintaining an important as you just said, non-appropriative separation between self. And then he goes on and he says, Derrida calls it the minute difference in spacing between the other and the same, which dislocates self-identification and opens in turn an ongoing responsibility to the other. And that made me think, is is this in a sense a, a, a move of a kind of, how shall I say, self-interest or self-preservation on the part of every individual subject because of the fact that we know we're not ourselves without the other? Or because in my understanding, this gets a bit at the heart of this idea of presence and where ethics starts to enter into the whole idea of rhetoric. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think in some cases, the answer to your question is yes. Um, for instance, in the chapter on Lysias, um, which is about which which links the the work of that ancient logographer to Derrida's ideas of hospitality, I, I think we do see a strong like self preservation um, happening there when when we begin to kind of feel how the self is cracked open from the inside, right? There there is a way that what we like to feel as the safe home of, of our being is actually much more precarious than that, right? It's, it's um, given by the other. And I think if given that that's the case, we sometimes feel anxious around um, situations like that. And, and, and in that particular moment where um, Lysias, who was, um, as I write in the book, uh, a metic, um, a, 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 a non-citizen um, resident, uh, very important, stitched into the culture in, in, in ways that go back all the way to Pericles, who invited his, his family to, to, to stay in, in Athens. Um, and what I use his case to show is, is that because the safe home of our being is kind of always and, and for all time given by the other, sometimes what arises there is a really violent um, attempt at, at border control, right? And, and we can see this, I think, you know, at the subjective level, but also, um, and, and this is where it becomes very, impre- very important, pressing political um, ramifications come from this, the, a kind of attempt at border control. So, a, a non-resident, um, a, a non-citizen resident 
gets kind of forced out of, of the place he was once welcomed because he's a threat to the identity of um, the Athenian state. And, and so I do think there are moments when this, um, this kind of always ongoing responsibility to the other lends itself to, to a kind of um, anxiety and, and, and push for a self-preservation. But I guess I would add that it's, it's also, um, it's also the place that gives rise to uh, a, a true welcoming, right. And right. An ethics that, um, you know, understands that the self isn't simply pure, right. And, and, needs needs the other and and given that um allows for a kind of uh, and and maybe I'll use that word again a kind of non-appropriative rapport an ethical relation when um the two coexist and that it doesn't have to to kind of become that issue of border control as it does in in that instance of Lysias who um you know was it whose position sort of move from a guest of the state. He sort of became so important. He became a host in his own right. And then ultimately was held hostage until he had to, to escape and, and then return as a, as a writer of, of persuasive speeches for a system, you know, he would never be allowed to participate in himself. I think these are precisely the gains that, uh, you know, this, this dual perspective on rhetoric, uh, or you know that we get from from your reading from the Derridian perspective and also from the more classical tradition that you know on the one hand you may have this sort of border control situation and, and I mean in the Lysias um, uh, chapter I had to think of him being you know a bit like the English uh, immigrants during the empire who are more English than the English themselves I mean the classic mm-hmm. example would be Oscar Wilde um, you know the quintessential Englishman who was actually Irish, <laughs> but we can right. even think to we can even think today of you know the you might imagine in 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 America the the immigrant who is illegal in a sense is more American than the American him or herself. Uh, if if you start to understand America as a and this isn't anything new, you know, a place of opportunity, Americans are all immigrants. You know, um, precisely that, that, is, that is our you know definition of American in a sense. And, 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 and this is the complication, as I, I was saying, that just makes um, the combinations that you, you, you provide in the book so wonderful because we see that, and I guess simplifying it, you would say that Derrida saw there was no way forward and yet he went forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I think, um, I, I think that one, one slight uh, perspective shift I, I'd, I'd suggest there is um, right. It's at that site. It's it's at that moment where you hesitate before um, before just charging forward and, and doing what you think is the ethical or responsible decision. It's in that moment where um, that it really is a kind of an encounter with the future that that actually helps you reimagine the past. And so, yes, even at, at that site of impasse, there is a kind of um, temporal blending. And that's not a very precise way to, to say it, but there, but there is this moment where 
um, alterity um, allows you to reimagine um, what's come before and, and perhaps even provide a, a path forward, but one that's new every time, right? One that's not prescribed, one that's not the application of an ethical rule, um, one that happens in the negotiation with alterity or otherness, which um, is always the case, right? Always ongoing. It's We never get to be done or satisfied that we have, you know, filled the ethical order. That seems to me to be perhaps one of the connections that uh, you, you say uh, you yourself work in writing instruction or writing development. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I do as well. And I had to Despite the fact that clearly we're dealing with, you know, ancient rhetoric and we're dealing with uh, Derrida in this book, I mean, really, every few pages I was reminded of, you know, classroom experiences, mentoring experiences, and and just the general um, approach that any novice writer has to the act. Uh, you say, for instance, just now, you know, that, that, that it's new every time, this newness in each encounter is... In, in my experience anyway, one of those most difficult things about helping writing development, helping people do, you know, be able to express themselves in writing. Right. Right. Yes. I, I have to say, um, you know, so so the book for me really is a, a kind of artistic and, and theoretical passion. Um, and and it is. It's it's about Derrida. And, and I don't think I've ever or would ever ask a first year writing student um, to read Derrida. Maybe there would be some, some circumstances. Um, it hasn't happened yet, let's just say. But I, do, but I do really feel like the things in the book that come from the classical rhetorical tradition are incredibly practical and, and really tied to um, what we hope happens to novice writers and in the writing classroom and I think that is a kind of becoming rhetorical, right? A kind of um, set of capacities that you develop um, that will that will enable you uh, to encounter futures we can't predict. Um, in, in the writing courses that that I teach here at Lehigh and um, and 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 I now run the first year writing program, so I work with new teachers and with with first year students. Um, I always feel like, you know, we can't teach students every writing situation they'll ever need to know. I mean, we just can't. I don't even think we can imagine them all, and also of limited time and, um, you know, lots of lots of limits that 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 kind of make that task impossible. But I do think that we can help students develop a kind of capacity to respond to those, um, you know, to the futures that, that we can't know yet. And, and I think that's what's so important about the writing classroom. Um, and I'll say for myself, uh, um, you know, when I write, I, I often feel like I'm still, you know, it still feels new, like another challenge to figure out. Um, you know, don't you wish you, you probably feel the same way. Don't you wish that it seems like by now you should know how to do this. And yet there is a kind of, um, you know, encounter with difference every time that, that makes it not seem like a repetition of something you simply know. 
Oh yes, I yeah, <laughs> I very much agree. There's there's a German writer uh, who you may be familiar with, Heinrich Böll, who won also the Nobel Prize uh, sometime in the 20th century, and, and it, he was a novelist and said much the same thing. He said, "You would think by now, you know, I would have a method, I would have a way forward, you know, page one, and you know, I've got this uh, idea for a novel." No, no, I break it down every time, and it's like anew. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. And and that's what's frustrating, but also wonderful about it, right? Like I, I think, you know, if I think back years ago to when I um, started graduate school, I chose, um, without knowing much, to be honest, I chose rhetoric and, and composition as my area because I really felt like I didn't have a specific commitment to any literary content area. But I knew that when I wrote, that's when I learned. And I felt like this was the area um, that would let me explore that idea. And and I think that's certainly the case. And, um, you know, I, I, I definitely take a lot of my own kind of um, pedagogical approaches from someone like Isocrates, who is, you know, understands the future is something we can't know. And so the only way to prepare students is to to prepare them to encounter difference, you know, to, to kind of become rhetorical in a way that will let them respond capably um, when the time comes. So, yes, yeah, so Socrates um, offers. I, I mean, I, I, you, you mentioned, you know, you wouldn't necessarily send a, a student right away to, to Derrida, but I would send plenty of people who are in um, writing studies as a discipline. And of course, typically also then writing development as teachers uh, to your book, and they're probably right from there into Derrida. I mean, many of uh, the things that Isocrates was doing where he says, for example, you know, it's more this, it's basically active learning. Right, the active mm-hmm. work that he does with his students and talks mm-hmm. about it being more than the content of the subjects themselves. I mean, this is a description of our discipline, isn't it? I mean, a, yeah. a discipline without content that is about all content. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, um, you know, what I would say is there is... Um, in the book, I, I I devote a whole chapter to Isocrates, who for me is is um, very formative in 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 that sense of right. Yeah, it, it is a kind of development of capacity. It's it's uh, mental gymnastics in in a way that that's a really wonderful thing to be involved in. Right? Not not a. I think sometimes or often that term is used negatively, but you know we need those. We need those mental gymnastics to to make ourselves ready. Um, to to respond to futures beyond the one 16-week course. Um, so I think Isocrates offers this very, you know, capacious um, and still really relevant um, model for the teaching of writing. Um, and, and I would oppose that to someone like Aristotle, um, whom I, I treat in the book, um, who's who's much more interested, I think, in, in providing a kind of a techne, a, a, a system that, that can be used over and over again. Um, and, and so I think we see between those two thinkers, a kind of difference in um, approach, right? And, and, I, and I myself much just, 
experientially, I, I feel like it's it is this kind of Isocratean approach of developing capacities, which seems much more aligned with what it is to write than than someone like Aristotle, who has this kind of elegant system for how it all fits together. Um, I, w- I wonder if, uh, sorry, I wonder if for readers you could just sketch out briefly the uh, Isocratean sort of pedagogy, um, just so that they have a, a notion. Yes, sure. Thanks. Um, so, so Isocrates, you know, emerges in in the fourth century as one of the um, leading figures in the, in the formalization of of learning. So he he opens a rhetoric school and actually takes on students who will stay with him for a longer period of time than they had under the tutelage of the sophists like Gorgias, who might treat in an earlier chapter. So it's it's kind of changing the shape of education. Students stay with him for a longer period of time, um, around three years. And, and over that period of time, he um, writes in several treatises about, about the ways that he um, exercises them, exercises their minds and their, their rhetorical abilities in a way that's not unlike um, athletic training um, and, and it's staged. So, so they tackle um, uh, subjects that are difficult to learn um, and, and they read texts that are and, and, and kind of critically assess um, good good text. So, so Isocrates is, um, you know, has been, has been called the father of the liberal arts and, and he would actually have students read, um, esteemed texts. And he had this belief that if you read good things, um, you will kind of become good. You will internalize those values of, of, of the great books and texts and speeches that you read. So, so it was a matter of development over time. Um, but also a matter of reading well-chosen, esteemed texts. So Isocrates insisted that he would never teach his students how to, to deliver persuasive but frivolous um, speeches for lawsuits, let's say. He was very interested in political rhetoric, deliberative rhetoric that um, his students could then use to, to become um, good citizens who, who made the entire community better with their, so it was, it was a matter of um, rhetorical development, but communicative development, but also moral development. And um, the idea was that having developed this kind of um, moral integrity, then, then when you go out into the participate in the political realms, you know, you will bring this, this good moral approach to the entire community. Um, and and I think that, you know, all of us who teach in any kind of university system with, with a liberal arts a- approach, you know, we owe a debt to Isocrates who, who formalized this approach to learning. Um, and, and what I argue there is that even though it seems to be this rather old fashioned model of moral development, his focus on the development of capacities and his interest in Kairos as this totally unpredictable moment that's really off the the chronological order altogether, um, kind of interrupts the content that he's so invested in 
and um, it initiates a kind of encounter with otherness where self-identity is unsettled. And, and so what I argue is despite the, the focus on moral education, um, you know, there is a real risk because we don't know um, what students will encounter and, and what it means to develop in this way is to encounter this difference, this unpredictable um, kind of impossible to grasp chirotic moment. Um, so, so with Isocrates, I think we have this, this model that despite its, um, you know, kind of old fashioned, uh, emphasis on moral literacy is actually incredibly exciting, incredibly still relevant in the 21st century. Um, you know, it's, it's a, a training in encountering the future you can't know. Um, and in openness to otherness and developing responses to to that otherness, and and I really see that as something that can happen and and should happen, should at least be the goal in um, in a contemporary writing classroom. Yeah, I mean, and education wide as well. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'm very much I very much hear that. But I mean, I I think that anyone who um, teaches understands what you mean in that chapter with this and and i use the word uh, consciously gamble of education to think mm-hmm. of william bennett who also uh, <laughs> appears <laughs> in the same right. chapter but right. um, i think really though again to be more serious that anyone who is in teaching will understand this this fracture of self if you like yeah mm-hmm. this this incompleteness that even you know, the best prepared of teachers face when they face other people who are going to take what they have to offer, however they're going to take it, the mm-hmm. teachings and the teacher him or herself. I mean, just think how many times have you been ill prepared for class and the lesson soared and been well prepared for class and nothing would work. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. that in itself for me is, you know, experiential proof that, um, right, there's risk involved here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I I think too, the you're exactly right. The, and similarly, maybe the thing that you most want to impart to your students that particular day, that's not at all, right? What you can sort of tell in the moment, that's not at all what they're taking from it. But it's like, well, <laughs> I guess that happens sometimes. So it kind of went another direction. Um, and and that's, not, uh, that's not a bad thing, right? Just, despite all of the the, the the deliberative kind of planning and um, path that you lay out it, it doesn't always um, right there is this 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 risk involved that that what you hope goes forward doesn't and and that isn't always um, a bad thing yeah and yeah. I mean I can imagine that uh, Socrates back then was probably doing these mental gymnastics in a more oral type sense. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure they had their wax tablets and so on. Um, mm-hmm. But I, if, if we translate some of this into a writing context, which you and I and probably many of our listeners will understand that um, his, his practices, his, his, you know, his active learning towards capacities instead of subject content mm-hmm. is so appropriate for the writing context. And when he mm-hmm. talks, if I translate here, reading and writing as being regular activities, you know, reading the esteemed authors, perhaps we could even think in a writing in the uh, disciplines type area where 
I don't know, biology, right? And they read mm-hmm. the esteemed writers there, the people who have won awards, the critical acclaim um, uh, authors and, and researchers. And and when you, I would imagine another capacity building um, activity on, on the writing end would be the regularity of your writing to continually apply it to the problems of your discipline. Because mm-hmm. when you let up, you also, you lose practice, don't you? Exactly. Yes. I, I, I think, I think you, I think it's true. I, and I think, um, I, I think there is a way that, uh, that, that practice, right. The, 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 the that it lines up so nicely with, um, physical training, right. You know, you, to, to run a marathon, right. You don't simply run 26.2 every day to practice for that. Like they have a, um, a set, you know, there, there are kind of things that gradually take you up to that. Um, but it's, it's persistent, right? It's over, um, an extended period of time. Regularity is, is important. And, and I, and I do think, I mean, I certainly feel like the contemporary university doesn't do enough of that with writing, right? Like, uh, first year courses. And then I think in many instances, a student that, um, the thinking is, well, they've had that, they've, they've passed that bar. Now they can move on to their, to their fields and not worry about writing anymore because we've taken care of that. And, um, when in fact, you know, it's something that's necessary along the whole course of study. And, and that's, um, why writing in the disciplines programs are so important. Um, but, but I do think certainly here, you know, it's a challenge to, to integrate writing into some of those other content courses that, um, you know, they, they understandably have a lot to include in, in, in their course and, and don't feel they have the training or the time to link that, um, to, to writing. So, um, I think it's a, it's a challenge, you know, in writing classrooms, we can, you know, we can devote the whole course if we're lucky to courses to that. Um, but, but beyond that first year writing situation, um, uh, I mean, I find that students are getting less writing instruction than I think is ideal. And it's, uh, it is a challenge. I entirely agree there, but it's, it's also one of those challenges that I feel is worth facing. If you, if you think of the medical profession, um, and the professionalization of it, which has gone on over the past 10 to 20 years in, um, doctor-patient interactions because mm-hmm. of the ethical questions that are concerned. And I mean, doctors and medical students are really busy people with lots to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wonder if it isn't also, you know, if we just say, for example, the natural sciences, it isn't too much to ask that the people in the disciplines and the writing instructors really do sit at one table and figure out because what else besides the lab work um, and the writing really, really matters to these people. I mean, their entire careers depend on the articles that they publish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Of course. Yeah. Um, yes. And I, and I think that, um, you know, in my own experience, colleagues in those disciplines do want to, um, to, to integrate it more. Um, and I think, you know, what's helpful is a really strong structure um, at the university that helps um, non-writing focused disciplines 
link their content to um, writing instruction that's informed by, you know, research in the teaching of writing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I have to return uh, to your your opening comments on on, on Derrida's uh, style and flair mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. and just the you know the admiration that you had for it and uh, I, I I do actually think that you most most certainly achieved moments of that sort and I think you kicked off the book with such a moment with two introductions <laughs> and um, I wonder if you wouldn't maybe. Uh, Give us an idea of what led you to to introductions, and maybe we could follow up with some talk of introductions because they figure into this um, this book quite quite importantly. Yes, yes, indeed they do. Um, yeah, thank you for that question. So, right, uh, and I, I'm trying to think about how how it came to be, but yes, you're right. So, so the the book opens with um, what I would call from the rhetorical tradition, a direct opening, which um, simply lays out the argument of, of the book to come and, and kind of puts it in a very digestible, I hope, digestible form for the reader. Um, and, and I think this is, you know, what we expect as readers and often need as readers. So, so we're kind of well positioned to, to go into um, the book to come. Um, but I mean, I will say since this was a book that, um, is, isn't on Derrida uses his work. I I just felt it didn't seem right to have only that particular direct opening. And, and so I then wrote a second, um, introduction, which is the, um, the indirect opening, which is, and, and these are both terms that come from classical rhetorical handbooks. And, and these anonymous handbook writers were offering advice for how to open your speech in a way that would be persuasive to your audience. And so the indirect opening, instead of laying everything out kind of in a digestible bit for your reader, you actually kind of... Um, you know, hide the central theme and, and, and open it in a, in a way that, um, that, that doesn't center your argument. And, and the recommendation from the handbook is you do this when you're, you, you need to argue something that you think the, the, um, audience won't be well, um, ready to hear or, or dislike in a certain way. And so there would be strategic reasons to occasionally use this indirect, opening. Um, and so what I do in that, um, indirect opening is a kind of encounter, a a reading of Aristotle who, who writes about his, his dislike of introductions, um, a kind of begrudging, you know, you need one, but they're problematic because they're not central to the text. In fact, they kind of threaten the, um, the independence and, and, um, autonomy of the text. So I felt like um, those two introductions um, kind of enacted in a way um, what I hope the whole book does, which is bring this kind of classical rhetorical tradition on how to be persuasive from from the the handbooks that were um, often dismissed as being too frivolous, not focused enough on logic and argumentation and, and too focused instead on structuring your, your claims to the outside. Um, 
with a thinker like Derrida, who understands that um, the text and, and its arguments aren't simply fully present, ever given, um, ever finally finished. Um, and, and so it was, it was a, an attempt to kind of um, perform um, what I think the, the book attempts to do as a whole, which is bring those two traditions together and, and um, show the ways that something that that's, you know, it's a, a part of a speech, an introduction um, can actually enact this kind of unsettling encounter with um, difference that that actually kind of disrupts our own comprehending selves, right? So, so um, it, it's the text isn't something I can simply give over, right? It, it it will be changed in the reading, and and the reader will be changed in the reading, and and there is a kind of um, unsettling coming together of those of those things that I hope um, happens in in those those two introductions. Mm, yeah. And I mean, it was the bringing in Derrida also made it so that um, it was clear that either way, the direct or the more roundabout way of an introduction, um, it, it became clear for me, something I'd never thought of, that the introduction is actually not there. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. It's such a, such an odd idea, but yet so important. If I think of the typical natural sciences research article, which is introduction, methods, results, and discussion, mm-hmm. it then made me think, yeah, indeed, the the methods, the results, and the discussion, that is the science. Mm-hmm. And every every scientist will tell you they loathe writing introductions. <laughs> it's just something right. that it's such a task. And, and for me to think that, yes, actually, rhetorically, we're dealing with something that is on the outside, and yet we somehow can't do without it. Um, right. the, the, in, the indirect method made me really stop to think because that indir- that method really says this isn't about content, which is what many scientists feel anyway. This mm-hmm. is about effects, and and that seems to actually capture what's happening in most research articles. Yes, I think so. And I mean, I would want to push the point even a bit further, which is that the introduction, the way it works, it's necessity, it's um, kind of being there at the start, that it does actually call into question the primacy, um, the the um, fullness, the, the kind of completeness of, of the text itself, right? Like, it's, Aristotle found it threatening and um, and yet necessary and and I think that um, I think that that challenge to the text uh, that the introduction offers is is one we need to to keep in mind right um, and and I think that that to me is 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 part of the ethical task right it's um, you don't simply uh, get to take something in, um, but there is a kind of there is a way that you are at stake, and and the 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 research itself is at stake, um, and and not simply there, but but um, subject to what happens in that encounter. And I think the introduction is cool because it it kind of shows that, and and that it is a threatening. Um, part of the speech. Um, I think it's, it's a, it's a good 
lesson to to keep in mind, you know? Yeah, this idea that it's at stake, I really like, because I think that does seem to boil down the essence of the introduction. I, I wonder, in what mind would you recommend that um, or, or, or advise a writer to be in when he or she is composing their introduction, whether it's, you know, to a book or to an article or what what it might be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think... Um, I mean, I, I, I do think it's true. I mean, I, I, I think the simplest answer is, is, is to follow the advice of, of the classical rhetoricians. You need to devise an introduction that, um, helps put your audience in the right disposition to, um, encounter your work, um, you know, when I think what a book affords is right the time and the space to do something a little more extended and and a little more um, a performative in in the in the loose sense, you know, um, where you can actually perform something with the writing that and and I think in an article, often you don't have um, the space for that. And um, I think in most cases, and, and and so I think. I would I would recommend like embracing um, the job of the introduction, which isn't really about what your argument is, but instead is about how to um, reach out to your audience before um, before they they read your research. Um, does that make sense? Do you do you know yes, what I mean? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. I I mean from what I understand is a little bit like you explained in the book that you're 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 as yet outside of your well, let's just take the example of the article you're you're as yet outside of your article and you mm-hmm. need to consciously be aware of that and pick up your audience as if you were on a you know a street corner i don't know and trying to getting them to enter to see the exhibition let's let's go inside let's uh, it's really worth your time yeah yeah and and i th- i think i would also say and and i i really feel i've i've found this myself um at, at the article level the work of the introduction um ultimately will affect what the argument is right it's as it's as big an ask it's as much a part of what you're doing as presenting your research now maybe this is something you feel more um, powerfully in a kind of humanities writing context, it it might not feel quite the same way in in in, in a more um, technical field where you do have results that you're sharing. But even so, I, I would say that um, in that positioning, right, in that rhetorical positioning, that moment where you reach out to your audience and 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 tell them basically, here's how you should be receiving this. Here's how I want you to be approaching what's to come. That sh- that sh- in turn shapes what's to come, even though it's external to it. Um, yes, yeah. very much so. Yeah. Um, Great. Well, uh, Brooke, you've been uh, very generous with your time. Um, I do have one last question, and this will kind of bring us for full circle back uh, to where we kind of kicked off the interview. And this this motivation you had coming from the persuasive arts and, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to find in there the something more that clearly is going on, which, which after this book I see is clearly going on as well. Um, this sort of wariness that, um, again, to get back to the natural scientists, especially natural scientists have towards 
rhetoric or persuasion. I mean, when you mention the idea of persuasion in a research article writing context, you'll find people sort of shaking their heads and thinking there's numbers and there's not numbers. <laughs> I, I wonder if you would be able to maybe say something to that wariness where you also as as you develop fully throughout the book, where you also are not just dealing with persuasion that is one-sided, but that clearly an ethics enters into it, a reciprocity, a, a rapprochement, to mm-hmm. bring us back to that difficult word. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, think, um, I think my approach there is to... Uh, and, and I'm thinking quite recently, um, uh, I collaborated with um, some colleagues in um, a, a public health setting to create a writing course that 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 was for students of public and population health. And, and it was, um, you know, a, a scientist who was concerned about focusing so much on on persuasion. Um, and, and I think th- <sighs> I mean, I think my answer is even empirical, lab-driven, um, data-based knowledge, um, even that is embedded in, in the midst of um, complicated social situations where um, human emotions, um, biases, um, the language that we use to, to communicate those findings, um, you know, it's, it's always being negotiated and, and, um, and, and I think, you know, it's self transformed in, in, in the way that it's used, um, in the way that it's understood. And, and so I think, um, I, I think persuasion doesn't have to only be this kind of, um, calculated, directed, um, perhaps even sometimes misleading um, a, a way of, of communicating information. But those findings are themselves always in the midst of, of a communicative situation that's that's full of all of that. And, and so I think what the persuasive arts, what, what the history of rhetoric is, is still um, so important for is, is thinking through some of those links. And, um, I, I think none of us should be so naive or, or, um, hopeful to just assume that, that what I'm putting forth is totally neutral and, and free of all of those constraints and that, uh, that, that the persuasive arts can, can help us sort and prioritize and, um, present information in a way that, um, matters in, in a way that, that can make things better. Um, but in a way that always, always needs to be negotiated and, and, and will maybe kind of never be done being negotiated. And, um, I, I think that's, that's why we need rhetorical training. So, so we can, you know, be engaged in that kind of, that kind of thinking about, um, what it is we are arguing. I mean, that's an enrichment of scientific communication, I would say. <laughs> very much so. Uh, th- thank you very much. Uh, that, that is uh, Brooke Rollins and her book, The Ethics of Persuasion, Derrida's Rhetorical Legacies, is out with Ohio, Univer- Ohio State University Press. I'm Daniel Shea. This is goodbye from me to Brooke. Goodbye. 
Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.